Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hi, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. And I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're doing okay wherever you are. I have on the program today Lana Bostichich. Her debut novel, Catch the Rabbit, is available now in translation from Restless Books. Catch the Rabbit is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. If you want to sign up for that, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com. Catch the Rabbit is the winner of the 2020 European Union Prize for Literature. Lana Bostichich is a Yugoslav-born writer, and when I spoke with her, she was in Switzerland, where she's been doing a residency for the past several months, working on her next book. And I really enjoyed meeting her and talking with her, and I really enjoyed this novel. It's an excellent book about two old friends who are reunited, and they go on the road to Vienna. That's a really simple way of putting it. It's a road novel. It's a novel about uh, memory, childhood, the past, the people who show us who we are and who we wish we weren't sometimes. <laughs> uh, just, uh, just wonderfully done. And I'm very pleased to get to share this conversation with you. Uh, perhaps this is your introduction to Lana Bostichich and Catch the Rabbit. Uh, I think you're in for a treat. So let's get to it. Here she is, folks. This is Lana Bostichich and her debut novel, her award-winning debut novel, One More Time, is called Catch the Rabbit. I decided that I would uh, analyze, in a way, the 12 chapters of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which is the first Alice book, and then try to mirror those 12 chapters with my own story, which is mostly set in Bosnia. Uh, and at first, it was just this kind of fun idea you have as a writer, like, okay, this could be a cool experiment. Um, and then uh, parallel to that, I had this idea of writing a, a road trip 
um, novel um, about my country that would somehow tell the story of my country, uh, but I didn't quite, you know, have all the ingredients yet. And then once I, I kind of brought the two, two of those things together, it just kind of made sense that I would have this 12 chapter narrative that I would mirror Alice, um, not just because it's fun, but also because I think on a, on some level, being a little girl in Bosnia in the 90s is similar to Alice's experience, you know, being dragged from her safe Victorian existence into Wonderland, which is actually quite dark and violent when you think about it. Um, so, and there's always the question of who are you? Uh, so I thought this would be a nice parallel to draw between these two stories and also give my story a kind of fantastical element um, instead of just writing, you know, another another war book. Okay, so the first part of that is of interest to me because I think it's a sometimes overlooked, maybe just by me, uh, strategy when you're trying to think of how to structure a novel or tell a story is to find some sort of precedent or you know, even like a, you're working with a fairy tale or a children's book, which is at a remove from the kind of book that you were trying to write, and yet you were using it as a kind of framework or inspiration for your own. I just, I want to say just yesterday was thinking of trying to do something similar for like a quasi crime novel that I'm pondering, but I have no idea how to write. <laughs> so that's a, like, I think like, that's a nice thing to do. It's not like, to imply that one should plagiarize, but I think you can look to other books as precedent in terms of how the story is built together. And you can almost, it's almost like you can uh, volley with it or work off of it uh, without feeling like too untethered. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not, uh, to me, you know, I don't think of literature as a series of patents or, you know, it's not physics. Uh, you, you go to literature and you see what is useful to you to tell your story. Um, and of course, to me, um, the biggest inspiration was what James Joyce did with uh, the Odyssey, you know, so you have this myth, this great ancient Greek myth um, of this great hero. And then you have this no man in Dublin, you know, the beginning of the 20th century, who's not remarkable in any way. And he's going to be his Odysseus, you know, Joyce's Odysseus. And I just thought this is lovely. You know, it's like nobody can say that Joyce plagiarized the Odyssey. Uh, and he, he was actually trying to say something about his own country. So this is what I wanted to do, you know, it's just uh, uh, to use these symbols, which already exist. Uh, exist in readers' minds um, universally, I think. Alice is such a universal story. Uh, to use them to actually say something about about Bosnia and about, you know, being a, a little girl there. And then the second piece of the puzzle is this um, this desire to write a road novel. This is very much a road trip novel. Uh, I love those kinds of stories. Uh, I, like, I like road travel, at least in theory. Well, I don't know if... I keep talking to my wife about wanting to do a road trip with our kids. And I think that might be, <laughs> I might be romanticizing this. <laughs> I might be off of that by the time we actually do it and get back home, assuming we do. But, um, in my youth, especially I could drive forever. Like I love just getting out and, uh, exploring. And so I think that when you're talking about wanting to sort of build off of Alice in Wonderland and then combine it with a road novel, uh, 
that makes a certain sense to me. There's a logic, like a creative logic in it. And I also feel like when I hear stories of um, how authors put together their books, sometimes it'll be the case that like you, they'll find uh, a precedent or a, a book that serves as an inspiration and a kind of sounding board throughout the writing process. But I often also find that people will arrive at some sort of concoction, like they're combining seemingly disparate elements. And once they get those two pieces together, it kind of clicks. Uh, is that the case? Like once you had those two things, then suddenly you had your bearings. Yeah, I think that was definitely the case with this novel. I wouldn't, you know, be that arrogant to suggest that everybody should do the same. You know, everybody has their own way of writing and, you know, a simple storyline is just, you know, can be just as good literature as something more complex. But to me, you know, once I had it, once I saw it, I was like, yes, this is definitely, definitely what I want to do because I have a journey. Um, it was also, you know, less intimidating writing your first novel, you know, and having a kind of outline structure. Um, I just don't think of myself as this, you know, genius who sits down and then the muses sing into my ears and I just pour it all out it just I don't believe in that I think it's hard work so it was just easier to have an outline and then you know work my way through the 12 chapters and then at the same time have a map uh, and know exactly where my uh, characters are in the story in each one of the 12 chapters uh, so you know then you just have to sit down and write it <laughs> right just... well I think too like knowing where it ends I've found in trying to write books over the years that like having a sense of end of an ending is is useful because then at least you're writing towards something. I know sometimes people just like intuit their way from start to finish and have no real idea about the ending until it happens. But I think it's more common to at least have a some sense of where it's going to reach its conclusion because it's so hard to sustain creative energies over the course of a long, you know, a big book project over a long period of time that I think sometimes it might get too demoralizing to be lost for that long, <laughs> you yeah. know, like to have a sense of at least, okay, I know where I'm heading. I'll figure out the details. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I can totally understand why that would be of comfort and, you know, I, I it would be like a, a saner way to do it. Yeah. To me, it's definitely like the most important thing when I'm writing is, is to know the ending, um, and to kind of work towards it because, until you have that, you don't really know what your story is about, you know? Uh, sometimes I think otherwise I would be writing and writing and writing and get to the end and then realize, oh my God, this was a completely, this story is not what I thought it was about. It's about something completely else. So it's just a good idea to shape the story so that it kind of arrives at this point. Um, and for me, from the beginning, I knew that it would be this, you know, museum and there would be exactly the scene that is there. I don't know how much I'm supposed to <laughs> reveal, but uh, I just had it clear um, from, from the beginning because I think I would I'm just I'm not, um, you know, a, a, a mature writer or whatever. <laughs> I don't have a lot of experience uh, writing. So I think I would just be, you know, going in too many directions, trying too many things, um, you know, digressing. And I think my story would just kind of get crazy and I would lose track of it. So it was just easier to know where I was heading. Uh, yeah. I mean, even, even if like in theory, you might've arrived at the same story and written the same book, 
maybe this way that we're, or this method we're describing is just more efficient. <laughs> exactly. You saved yourself a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. At least it's less intimidating. That's for sure. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, and you translated this book yourself. Yeah. Now, that's not something I've heard, uh, I don't think, in the history of the show, somebody translating their own work. Maybe there's somebody who's translated their work from English to another language. But can you just talk about the, the, that project of, of translating to English? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, it's not something I would recommend. I think it's definitely better to have somebody else translate your work. I think there needs to be some sort of distance. Um, but the truth is, I mean, if I asked you or you are, you know, listeners, how many Bosnian women writers do you know? <laughs> I'm sure the number would not be <laughs> great, right? Uh, and this has to do with a kind of firewall that we have. And, you know, it's very hard for women writers in Bosnia, in the Balkans in general, to get out there, you know, from, you know, awards, uh, magazines, publishing houses, anything really. And then if you can't get there, it's very hard to get translated. So it's like really, really difficult to make it internationally. So what I realized when I finished the, the my first draft, actually, in the original, I realized if I don't do this, it's not going to happen. You know, I, I will be waiting for somebody to just discover it on their own. But how many people really speak Serbo-Croatian or Bosnian? Um, so I thought, okay, I want to find an agent. I didn't have an agent at that point. And I want to get translated, but I need to have some sort of text that I can show to, you know, French publishers, Spanish publishers, English publishers. So I sat down and I just translated the whole thing. And then it was a really useful thing when it comes to editing, because while translating, I could see certain things that I didn't like, that I thought were redundant, you know, it was kind of, I, would, I could kind of wait out all this, you know, dead weight. And then I went back to the original and I edited, you know, from, you know, going back and forth. Um, so it was a really useful process, of course, time consuming, <laughs> incredibly time consuming, but that's how in the end I got an agent and that's how I got all these, you know, translation deals. Um, otherwise I think it would have been, maybe it wouldn't have happened. 
So based off of the, the the English translation that you did, that got you other translation rights sold. Exactly, because, you know, the, the agent that I found in Barcelona, I was living in Barcelona at that point, he doesn't read Serbo-Croatian. <laughs> Nobody really does. So, uh, so it's a catch-22 situation where you need to be translated to get an agent. But in order to be translated, you need an agent. So I just realized, yeah, I'm going to just, I'm going to sit down and do this. Maybe it's not going to be perfect. I just need to have a functional text that I can, you know, show to people. And then what happened is that uh, my editor at Picador said, well, we actually like this voice and we would like to work with this translation. And this was really scary to me, like, oh, my God, really, you're going to do this? I'm not a professional translator, let alone, you know, native speaker of English. But, but, but said, wait, 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 you speak beautiful English. Um, and yeah, I've but... also I've also poked around on the Internet preparing for this. Like you speak. How many languages do you speak? Um, so I speak um, five languages. OK, see, this shames me. I'm an American, like a <laughs> monolingual American. You speak like fluent Italian. It's, is that right? Yeah, Spanish, Catalan, yeah. No, but the thing is, you know, it's still I think that when it comes to translation, it's best to have a native speaker because there are some nuances that, you know, you guys know and they come naturally to you and not to me, honestly. But um, but luckily I had a great editor in English, so um, we managed to, you know, prepare the text for a publication. I'm going to push back a little bit because I've tried to feature, and by the way, did you do you know Vesna Marich? Um, Bosnian writer. She lived in Barcelona. I talked to her for this show earlier this year. There is a Bosnian writer who lived in Barcelona, and I haven't heard of her. Yeah, she's still there. Wow, that's uncanny. <laughs> yeah. So when if you go back, I could put you guys in touch. You guys should hang out. Definitely. Uh, but I think that you know, you say it's better for somebody else to translate you. As a fan of reading works in translation, and like I've been trying extra hard this year to read outside of like the normal American publishing sphere, just to, I've been joking. I'm just like, I'm very tired of America. <laughs> I need to, I need other voices in my head at this point. But I find that the work of a translator is much like the work of a good editor, undervalued, unseen, doesn't get the credit that it deserves and matters hugely. If you have a bad translator and they are translating a very good book, they can easily ruin it. <laughs> Uh, and maybe they can elevate a book that would otherwise be not so great. So what I would argue to you for future uh, books that you might write in your native tongue and then seek to have translated is be very careful because this is a very good translation. And I think whatever blind spots you may have in terms of the vernacular in English, those things can be edited out or can be ironed out with a good editor. But you have no one has better command of your story and the nuances of the characters and the world of your story than you do. So I don't know if I were you, I might stick to your process that you have here, unless you find a translator who you trust really, really well, you know, because I think this worked out well. I didn't find, I don't know. I didn't find anything lacking in it. Yeah. Well, I'm really happy you say that, but you know, I I think that, I think having another person translate your work, I think it's more honest because you're really tempted to change things. You know, you think, okay, this is the exact translation, but these languages are so different. They belong to different language families. This would sound better in English. And then, you know, you're tempted to change it, et cetera. Um, So in this way, um, it's... um, 
I don't know if it's completely honest. I don't know if you can say it's the same book, but maybe you can't say that about any translation. I still think that definitely, you know, I, I agree with what you said that uh, translators are terribly underrated. And this is for this was the case, for example, with Virginia Woolf in uh, former Yugoslavia. Um, those trans those first translations were terrible. They were so terrible that Virginia Woolf had almost no readers um in Yugoslavia you know so uh it took like years and years decades for her to get readers and it's the, it was the translator's fault so you know I think we tend to overlook this and um and especially we tend to forget uh that English is kind of you know colonizing <laughs> the you know the, lit the whole global literary scene if it exists and um this idea that you either exist in english or you don't exist so you know so we sh really should um encourage uh translators and and you know pay them well um and especially from these so-called small languages because uh, there aren't that many yeah and i feel like uh, american publishing houses need to do a better job of publishing works in translation. There are, are presses like Restless, there are um, Archipelago Books, does a lot of great translate, you know, translations, but it doesn't happen often enough in American publishing. And I don't know, I feel like committed to reading cross-culturally, um, like going forward. This isn't just like, it, it doesn't feel like a temporary experiment or temporary phase, you know, in my reading. Um, I kind of started this year, like kind of a New Year's resolution, you know, like I'm going to read more works in translation. And now I'm just into it. I don't see it ending anytime soon. Um, I feel like it's a much richer reading experience. And it just, I don't get to travel the way that I wish I could. And it's a nice way. Like I went to Vienna, as far as I'm concerned, after reading your book. You know? <laughs> it's the next, it's the next yeah. best thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I also, I mean, I have to say, since I uh, majored in English, um, I had the same problem, which is that I read mostly English and American writers. <laughs> uh, so, you know, in original. Uh, and then I also made this resolution of, okay, for Christ's sake, you're like a Slavic writer, you cannot do this. You, yeah. know? you owe it <laughs> to this legacy, the great Slavic legacy, you know, at least go to the Russians, you know, start there. And, um, and yeah, I, I had to make this. And now whenever I travel, when I go, for example, I was in Budapest recently. So I went to um, a bookshop. Um, I don't speak Hungarian, um, obviously. Yes. I don't yes. know if anybody can. <laughs> <laughs> but I went to an English bookstore and I asked them, okay, give me, give me Hungarian writers that I, you know, must read, that I can't say I have not read. Um, and that was a great experience, you know, and then, you know, talking to the, the bookseller. And so now I'm trying this, you know, that visiting going to cities and then trying to read locally and um, I'm, I'm really happy about it yeah so i want to ask you a little bit about before we like talk more about your book i want to learn a little bit more about your personal history growing up in the former yugoslavia um you seem young so i'm trying to <laughs> i'm trying to place you in in the country's history like with respect to like your childhood experiences um <laughs> Like, where were you, like, you know, with respect to the war and the aftermath and your personal experience? Yeah, so I was born in 1986, which is, you know, the year of the Chernobyl. 
<laughs> and um, which is six years after the death of uh, Tito, the dictator, uh, or the president of Yugoslavia. Um, and then I was about five when the war started, which means that I'm a bit younger than my characters. Uh, it was a, it was a choice. I wanted them to remember things better than I do. Um, and then um, I was around nine when uh, the war stopped uh, and I grew up. So I was born in Zagreb, which is the capital of Croatia. But already in the late 80s, um, there was this policy of, you know, ethnically cleansed or clean or whatever Croatia. Um, so non-Croats were you know, suffering under under a lot of pressure to leave. Um, so my family um, left Zagreb and we went to Bosnia because my grandparents were there. And it's, I mean, now, you know, in hindsight, it sounds like the, the dumbest place to go in the 90s. But the truth is, back then, a lot of people, including my parents, really saw that there's no chance there would be a war. You know, it's just like today, people like in Switzerland, people would say there's no way wherever. Like that was that kind of, you know, thinking it's just not going to happen. So we were in Bosnia and the war started and... Um, and we stayed there, and I grew up in Banja Luka, which is the um, it's a city in, in north northern Bosnia, with a, a majority of Serbian population. Um, so I could see, you know, with this kind of strange, you know, moving, strange family history, I could see both sides. I could see what it's like to be, you know, not wanted somewhere because of your ethnicity. And then I moved somewhere and I could see what it's like to be part of the majority and to be privileged because you're not a minority. So I had these both you know, perspectives. Um, and this is something I wanted to, to include in the novel. This is why you know, two characters have two different ethnicities. Um, so I could kind of um, explore this theme further. So as a child with the war going on and you were in Banja Luka, like how close was the war to your day-to-day -day existence? Were there things that you saw as a child that most children don't see or were you insulated from it? Uh... Well, you know, it's strange when you are five and then there's this thing going on um, and you're practically just, you know, developing you know, cognitive abilities or, or, you know, making memories, whatever. Um, to you, that's the default mode. It's just how the world works. You know, there's no electricity and that's normal. We can only have food that doesn't have to be refrigerated and that's normal. You know, we have to bring wood to, 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 to our school because, you know, we have to, there's no electricity. We're, we're going to be cold. You know, there's this, uh, what do you call it? Um, a wooden um, wood burning stove exactly uh, a wood burn burning stove so it's like all these things but to you they're normal you know so it, it was actually later when they told us oh you know they're signing the peace agreement and we were like oh my god what does that mean <laughs> what's going to happen to us you know because it's just you're used to this other thing uh, but the truth is i had a very privileged childhood um my city didn't see much war and um and 
I had a privileged childhood because I had the right name and the right time and the right place. Um, and this is something I wasn't aware of until much later, you know, where, where I could see, I could, for example, compare the demographics before the war and after the war and see how, you know, how much Muslim population um, had to leave or, you know, um, went missing and how it changed. Uh, but back then to us, it was just, um, it, it was just normal. Yeah. So you're burning, you had a wood burning stove in your school? Yeah. And you had to bring your own, uh, what do you call it? Logs? Kindling. Kindling? <laughs> wait, yeah. was, there, was there one wood burning stove for each student or was there just one in the room for the whole? Oh God, no, one in the room. Okay. Okay, good. I was trying to, that was, that's a lot of stoves. <laughs> yeah. But you know, when you're a, like, when you're a, a kid, it's like, you don't think like, oh my God, this is terrible. We're children. We're going to be cold. You think like, I'm going to bring the most, you know, right. like they're going to say, wow, she's a girl, but she's so strong. You know, it's right. like you turn everything into, into a game. It was, I think it was much harder for our parents because they knew the better times, you know, they remembered the heyday of Yugoslavia where everybody had everything and education was for free and health care was for free. And, you know, it's just, they were just happy. Of course, they are also idealizing it. It was, you know, communist dictatorship, but they, they didn't suffer in any way. So to them, I think it was much more heartbreaking to see, you know, their kids you know, having to go through all this. Mm-hmm. Um, but to us, it was just we just accepted it. as That's that's what it is. Yeah, no, it's interesting to countenance that against my experiences in America over the past few years and also as a parent with young children in something of a similar mode where there's all this chaos and menace, mm-hmm. you know, happening in our country and in our government. And yet you're trying to kind of put on a brave face for your kids. You're obviously not going to bring them into the living room and watch the news with them. And, <laughs> you know, oh God. Yeah, you know, you're trying to kind of insulate them. My daughter's now 10, and she's pretty perceptive, so she picks stuff up. But this brings me to my question for you as a person who was like five years old when the war started. Is that what you said? Yeah, exactly. I understand how the resilience of childhood, you know, how kids just kind of roll with the punches and accept their reality much better than adults, you know. Uh, in a way, it's kind of your good fortune that you were a child when this happened, because I think yeah. ki- kids tend to handle things better than adults in a lot of ways. But I'm wondering if, with the benefit of hindsight, you're able to understand in yourself as presently constituted things that might have found their way into you, things that you might have absorbed as a child intuitively. Like, because to be surrounded by all of those adults who are weathering a war and who are remembering the old days and who are sad because they're witnessing the, you know, a lot of human failure. (laughs) Um, It's impossible to think that a child, especially a perceptive child, wouldn't pick up on that stuff. You know, I worry about that with my kids. Like, what is my, especially my daughter, I'm like, what is she... How is she going to process all of this or how is she processing all of this and, and what's it going to mean to her 15, 20 years from now? Like, do you have a sense of that in yourself after the fact? 
Yeah, definitely. I think we um, we kind of underestimate uh, kids and and their uh, their perceptive abilities. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have my diaries. I actually uh, started keeping a diary when I was around seven, and um, and I've never stopped. So it's really strange to read. You know, it's it's written in this voice of of a child, of a seven year old kid, an eight year old kid. And, uh, and just to see how how much I actually figured out, but then also to see how much I didn't. And um, it's interesting also because somehow children always think that they're to blame for a lot of things, that it's somehow their, their fault. So, you know, if your parents are obviously, if they're dealing with all of this, you know, your dad is away somewhere, um, fighting or not fighting, uh, your mom is trying to make do with what she has at home, you know, and she has three kids. Um, of course, they're not going to be like the most <laughs> loving, understanding parents. They have like a bigger fish to fry, right? But, you know, you think, no, it's something I did. It's my fault. Um, so this was really, I mean, it was heartbreaking for me to read. But I also loved the how somehow uh, this this naive way of looking at things was, was somehow more honest. Um, you know, things that, for example, to give, to give you an example, uh, it was completely normal to adults that, you know, a child would change, have, have his or her name changed because they had the wrong, let's say, the wrong ethnicity. Um, you know, so a Muslim name would become a Christian name. So they just accepted it as something that you have to do. Whereas to a child, this was just completely crazy. Like, what do you mean? You can't change your name, you know? We didn't realize that it happened because of nationalism, because of, you know, xenophobia, because of hatred. But, you know, we just thought this is ridiculous. You know, one day you're called this and the next day you're called that. And actually that way, you know, the way a child thinks is true. Because it is ridiculous. Right. It shouldn't be normal, yeah, right? Their instincts are correct. Uh, so that, yeah, exactly. It was. It was somehow. This is why it, rem it reminded me of Alice, because Alice finds herself in this, you know, country or land where there is this crazy logic. It's not that there's no logic. There is a logic, but it's completely, you know, it doesn't make any sense to her. People just make up rules. You know, you cannot. Um, you cannot testify in court because you're not tall enough, things like that. Um, so this is what it felt like to us also. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I can totally relate. Uh, I'm living in a country that doesn't make I guess, I mean, what country does make sense when you look at it under a magnifying <laughs> glass? But I think there are certainly eras or periods of time where things get particularly illogical. Yeah. And it's, I find it stressful to consider, like to pay attention to it, to actually try to monitor what's happening in real time with some clarity and to watch the craziness unfold. And then to watch, I think watching the craziness unfold is one thing, but to then mm -hmm. witness like a huge swath of the population, not having any problem with it. <laughs> exactly. like, that's the part that it becomes so disorienting is you feel like, you're like, I'm surrounded by people who think this is real or don't care or yeah. are just not paying any attention. And that part of it is what gets so alarming. Yeah, I guess we are like witnessing this major lack of empathy 
more than ever. Uh, I don't I don't know if it has to do with this, you know, age of hyper individualization and social media where it's all, you know, me, myself and I. Um, and I can only talk and write about myself and I'm only interested in myself. I don't know if it has to do with that. I don't want to, I'm not a philosopher, um, but, uh, but you know, there's just this lack of empathy. And I think this is what children have. And this is why we have, uh, you know, a, a preteen or a teenager, uh, uh, you know, at the head of the climate change, you know, battles. And <laughs> because I think a kid, a kid is going to call you out, um, you know, on certain things, racism, you know, climate change, a kid, you know, uh, show a kid a picture of a refugee in a boat. Uh, and the kid is going to say, why don't you help this person? You know, they're, they're just naturally they're going to I don't want to idealize them. Like there are some really terrible kids out there. But, <laughs> but I think I think they're going to react, you know, whereas the, the adult, the adult is going to try to rationalize, to explain. And usually this is not going to, you know, be full of empathy. You know, I'm thinking about the Americanization of the world, like global hedge, you know, hegemony and or hegemony and uh you know, you talked about it in publishing. You just mentioning, you know, the way that English language publishing is has a kind of colonizing aspect. And I've been, I read a story in the news just the other day about how France is becoming, you know, France has forever bemoaning how it's becoming more and more American. You know, there's always that resistance to wanting to preserve its own culture, which I think is the right instinct. But I worry about this notion of hyper-individualization. I mean, these social media companies originated in the United States, did they not? And exactly. I I had a conversation on this show with a writer named uh, Jared Kobeck, who lives here in L.A. and is a, a pal of mine. And he, was, he makes the point, which I think is overlooked a lot of the time when we talk about social media, is that these platforms were built by, by men. <laughs> they were. And it's one thing to say, well, they have the money and the power and they own these companies, but they also wrote the code. They also made decisions about how the platforms behave in large part. I know there are women who work for these companies too, but the majority is nerdy yeah. dudes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we should think more about what that means in what are its implications? Are these guys, you know, like the libertarian tech bro kind of, uh, archetype, you know, how, how, how pervasive, uh, was that at these, at the origins of these platforms and what are the implications of it? Like that kind of trips yeah. me out, but <laughs> you, you're never going to, you're never going to catch me arguing in defense of social media companies. I can't say social media is a bugaboo for me and to the point where I fear that my listeners are like, Oh God, here he goes again. <laughs> <laughs> the cranky middle-aged man railing against Twitter. But it's partially because I've read a lot about it and I feel like I've, you know, I've learned a lot about how toxic and I don't know, just uh, wrongheaded a lot of, a lot of it is, but also because I was a Twitter addict in the extreme. Yeah. So I'm not speaking from some, yeah. you know, it's very addicting. Yeah. Yeah. So I've lived it. I'm a, I'm like a junkie in recovery and now, you know, I'm railing against it. But, but to yeah. me, you know, the, to me, the scariest thing about these social networks is, is this creation of bubble society. Uh, you know, that you you think, you know, you open I don't know, Twitter or whatever you have, Facebook, Instagram, and you think I'm out there, you know, I'm, I'm talking to the world. 
um, where actually you're just talking to a bubble and this bubble is based on your cons consumer behavior, you know, because we are just somewhere, you know, somewhere in some marketing agency, you are the type for some product, you know, exactly you, the cranky, what did you say, middle-aged social networks, hating guy, you are, you are the consumer for something, you know, so it's like we've created these bubbles and we think that we are, you know, uh, out there that we understand the world but actually we don't it's just a society full of mirrors and uh, and this is what scares me and I think that also has to do with this lack of empathy somebody once said like the most subversive thing you can to you can do today is like a post on Instagram that has nothing to do with you that you don't even like that you know none of your followers follow like step out of the game you know <laughs> just disturb the pattern um, well, I was going to say, mess with is, mess with the algorithm. Exactly, mess with the algorithm. Yeah. I mean, if you yeah. want, because you talk about the dangers, or you know, like, like this bubble society that it creates, like, and then you talk about the former Yugoslavia, or you talk about contemporary America, and how balkanized, <laughs> you know, to to use like a, a apt word or whatever, um, things have become how tribalized this is what happens with social media algorithms reinforcing people's biases is that it gives you this impression that you're out there getting the news and commiserating with the world when all you're really doing doing is being fed stories and opinions that reinforce your biases and agitate you which keeps you on the platform and exactly. you know i've said this many times before it always bears repeating like that's you're their mark that's how they make money is by keeping your eyeballs glued and they figured out that by keeping you f like afraid and pissed off you're going to tune in more often and so exactly. i think that it in it increases a sense of tribalization whether you realize it or not and it it desecrates and it has you know it's impressive work really when you think about the fact that these companies have only been around for you know, 15 years, really. Yeah, but Brad, we did the work. I know. That's the scary thing. Yeah, we work for them. Yeah, we work for exactly. them. But yeah, I'm just saying... Filling that... out those profiles and opening those things and posting. We are doing the work because we love the mirror. Right. We love to see ourselves, you know. It's it's genius in a way. It's terrible, but it, yeah, <laughs> that's it, why it works. That's right. And it, it just desecrates a sense of shared civic identity. Um, <laughs> I think that's what it's done in the large part here at home i'm sure around the world and um i don't know what the solution is i don't think they're going anywhere but i think there has to be some sort of changes you know some significant changes made to keep these things from becoming hyper toxic um i want to talk to you you mentioned changing names as a way of protecting one's children uh in the former yugoslavia and in your story uh, there are two principal characters. This is a story. I know this reduces it, but it's a story of two female friends. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how tired you are of hearing it talked about that way. It's the female friendship road novel, but yeah. you know, we always need a shorthand. Um, yeah, of course. But you have Sarah and then you have, and help me with the pronunciation. Is it Layla? It's like, it's like the Clapton song. Okay. I got it right. Then. I'm proud of myself for having been saying that Very good. as I was reading, but there is the original spelling, which is L-E-J-L-A. Yeah. And then it is, in the story, she changes it to L-E-L-A, which is, I guess, the more Christian spelling. Yeah, I know it sounds ridiculous, and it is ridiculous. But uh, Layla is an Arabic um, name. It means night. So it's 
in Bosnia, you know, if you have that name, you're immediately associated with Islam, even though if you're, you're not a practicing Muslim, it doesn't really uh, make any difference. Whereas Leila is, um, is, uh, is a Serbian Christian name. So just uh, one taking one letter out, um, you know, you, you, you turn, or at least like you seem um, to have changed your um, your um, religion, your you know group, your social group, your ethnicity, everything. One letter. One letter. Exactly. That's a, that is absurd, right? <laughs> Whatever. It's completely absurd, and I mean, there were a lot of uh, when I was growing up. I remember kids, you know, coming to school just one day, and we would be told, "Okay, his name from now on, his name is." whatever, you know, Marco, which is like Mark, Christian name, Petar, which is like Peter, you know, and it used to be whatever um, Muslim name. And, um, and I remember thinking, what, that's, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. And, and, you know, we just had to accept it. And like, we knew that we shouldn't talk about it. Um, And it was, you know, it wasn't until years later, looking back that I realized, oh, my God, this was just ethnic cleansing. This was, you know, people, this was a matter of life and death just parents making this choice. And then I asked myself, what happens to a 10 year old, you know, like your daughter, you know, 11 year old, somebody comes to her and tells her, okay, from now on, you're called, whatever, Christina, don't tell me her name is Christina. (laughs) You know, like, what happens to your sense of identity to yourself sense of self, you know, I mean, it shatters. It's very hard to to later on to build any sense of self, I think. And this was happening on a large scale um, in Bosnia in the 90s. I can imagine as a parent trying to make it into a game. Just, yeah. Just to try to help help it make sense to your kid, like as a protective kind of impulse. But what a sad thing to have to do. Exactly, yeah. Uh, okay, so your book is about just to give listeners who haven't had a chance to read kind of a, a general idea. It's not idea. about social networks. <laughs> no, it's not about Facebook. Thank God. Um, but why don't you, can, I mean, I know this is maybe the worst question to ask a novelist, but can, you've done enough interviews at this point. Can you sum it up in a, in a couple of sentences? I, I could do it, but I prefer yeah, to have the author also, take it on. This is also such an American thing. Um, uh, I recently also had an interview um for some american bookstore and they told me like tell us about your book in you know less than a minute <laughs> it just sounds like yeah can you, you get know, this like over with was, please it was a talent show or something <laughs> you know it's so anti-european you know like because we don't have time we have to be productive we are americans uh. we only have a minute for you but uh so you know it, it's always hard for me to do it and then i would say well it's orange and the letters are blue. You know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, so basically it is a, a book about two women who um, um, grow up together in war-torn Bosnia and years later are reunited to go on a journey um, to Vienna. And um, during this journey, there's a lot of flashbacks to their shared, um, shared childhood um, so this is normally what I say. No, that's great. I, I avoid the, the word friendship because I think it's, it's such a complex relationship that they have. I feel like we, I feel like we lack words 
for for friendships all different kinds of friendships that people can have and um because what they have is at times very toxic competitive at times it's almost like sisterhood so um whenever i hear you know two friends i'm just (laughs) not sure about that yet do you have relationships like this or a relationship like this well, you know, I kind of drew upon a lot of different women in my life, um, in like different different parts um, of my childhood. Um, but <clears throat> I have to say, I'm I'm lucky not to have this kind of <laughs> this kind of thing in my life because I think, and I think by the end of the book, well, I don't want to spoil it, but um, um, I think there is a, I think they need each other. I think there's a learning process that's important, especially for Sarah. Uh, I think there's an education there, uh, but I also think there's an there's an end, um, and I think there has to be one. What an end to their the relationship? Maybe I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. This is what I this is what I stay up at night thinking about. What happened? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So I don't want to get too gendered in my like proclamations, but I think that female friendship tends to be different than male friendship, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad ways. I think as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking of my daughter just like on the cusp of adolescence and how intense her girl friendships have gotten, or some of them have gotten at school. To the point where like, you know, school just ended here, like the spring semester just ended. So they (laughs) broke into summer and they have these like end of year parties. And uh, my wife took... That's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's like swimming and, you know, boys and girls and the whole thing. And uh, one of them like ran into the night. I'm at home with our younger child. So I'm not there. My wife comes home and she's like describing this like girl fight that happened. And our daughter was sort of in the middle and then like one of the moms like had had a couple of glasses of wine and is like, you know, you guys need to like, there was like this big shouting resolution and there's <laughs> tears and I'm just like, oh my God, you know, but, uh, I also grew up with sisters and then I also watch the ways in which, um, my wife and her friends build and maintain r- friendships. Those are healthy. Um, my wife is not you know, she doesn't have a lot of dramatic friendships in that mode, but, uh, I think it sometimes happens, especially in adolescence. What I would say about guys, especially as a, as a grown man, is that we're just terrible at being friends with anybody. Like guys have their own set of problems. It just seems different. Like I have a hard time making friends, like doing, like we don't do anything together. Like women talk and like support one another. And guys are just like, Hey, you know, like, Maybe you watch like a game with them or something, you know, that's about as far as it goes. But I think that the Sarah and Layla, Sarah's the um, protagonist of your book and um, the narrator, but the Sarah-Layla relationship is a really deftly drawn um, portrait of just how complex and multifaceted female friendship is, but also childhood friendship like those deep deeply rooted childhood friendships they're impossible to replicate i don't care how close you become to somebody later in your life like you can develop a great deep friendship with somebody in your adult years 
it's never quite the same as the one you formed with somebody when you were like 10, you know? Yeah, um, yeah exactly. I mean, when, when it comes to female friendship, I, ha- I have to say, I mean, um, at least in Bosnia, and I think it's the same in the rest of the world, unfortunately, um, these are forged in, in really heavy patriarchy. And we are taught from a very young age that our main goal is to compete for male attention. And, you know, we're going to get validation if we are seen and acknowledged by a man. So immediately you tend to see other women as competition. And and there's this, you know, culture in Bosnia. This is why a lot of us growing up, I, I talked to my friends about this. We had internalized um, misogyny, you know, where you would say, I don't hang out with girls. I only you know my best friends are boys, you know, and that's like a good thing because that's like real friendships and girls are trivial. I mean, it's, it's, you know, internalized misogyny. It's like hating your own sex or thinking it's not, you know, serious enough because they're your competition and you're supposed to beat them for male attention. And, um, you know, having a friendship develop in this kind of um, environment, it's going to be very complex. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're constantly, you know, comparing yourself to this other person copying this other person um and and i remember this so so of course some of those friendships survived and we learned to you know we actually unlearned a lot in order to first see each other as you know human beings who can talk about something other than men you know and we do talk about things other than men but it took a lot of work i think things are changing now i can see that things are changing and i'm happy that they are uh, but it was really, really like that. It just they were they were your competition, you know, even I think in the media, also a lot of American movies uh, that, of course, we were bombarded with, um, especially after the fallout of Yugoslavia. It was just suddenly, you know, English everywhere. But it was, you know, you have the the popular girl and then her ugly friends, you know, and it was like, why? This is terrible, you know. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, this is something that I wanted to explore. And when it comes to children and, and what you said, childhood friendships, I think we as adults, we tend to dismiss um, all of, I think, their experience, not just friendships, as, you know, less important, trivial, not, not going to last. You know, even when they fall in love or whatever, we see it as, as not that important. But then you realize this is their whole life. This is their universe. And in their universe, that's the friend, that's the crush, that's the villain, that's the, you know, ally, whatever. It's like, it's so important to them. And um, and I do think there's something special about those friendships. Like when you're a kid, you can come to your friend and say, you know, okay, you stink today. <laughs> you know? yeah. And that's going to be okay. You right, know? right. Or, you know, I don't like you. You know, what you said is stupid. You know, it's like there's like this brutal honesty, like all those layers and layers, like Victorian layers <laughs> would come later. So I do think those friendships are special. And I'm pretty sure that whatever fight your, your daughter had or, or was part of, I'm pretty sure it was a very big deal to them. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And, you know, trying to like parent through that. I don't know. I hope I do the right thing because I think maybe there is like there's a part of me that can trivialize things because my memory of my, you know, childhood memories, like some of them stand out. Me, I don't have a great memory. Like I don't even 
I don't remember a single day of high school practically, maybe some certain instances, but maybe that's good. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. And so I can sometimes, my daughter will come home crying and I'll be like, don't worry about it. You'll never remember this in 20 years. And she's like, dad, that's yeah. not helping me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't, you, I mean, to her, it's important. It's now it's happening now. So, yeah. Yeah. so I'm also thinking of that trope, you know, the guys girl trope. Like she's a girl that can hang with the guys like you were talking about. I feel like I'm kind of the guy that hangs with girls. <laughs> Maybe I got problems. You know, I have guy, <laughs> I have guy friends, but if I, I've said this before, but if I'm at a party, I tend to be sitting with women. I like, I prefer the company of women to men if I had to choose and not just like as a sexual being or whatever, you know, like I'm just talking about as like conversational company. Maybe that's because I was raised with sisters. Yeah. Is there something wrong? Is there a red flag we need to discuss here? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. But it's, it's funny because we also have this uh, very strong segregation in Bosnia. Like if you have, I don't know, uh, my niece, for example, she celebrated her 11th birthday recently. And then, you know, parents came with kids and the mothers and the fathers just kind of naturally, it's like Moses had appeared and just separated them, you know, which is they just mothers went to, to one side of the room and the fathers to another one. It was really, really funny because I was there with a friend, a male friend who is Catalan, who is really like the least Bosnian person you can imagine. And he kind of came, you know, to our table because he knew me. So he was like, he decided to, and then, you know, he completely messed up with this kind of, uh, it was also like a National Geographic documentary about, you know, male and female behavior. And then all the men were like confused, like, oh, but like, is like, should we also go there? What, what should we do? He's there. Now he's cold. They're laughing. What is he talking about? Right. And then suddenly, you know, thanks to him, the whole group kind of got mixed up. And uh, it was like a little revolution. <laughs> That's, but that's what she, that's what needs to happen. I, I mean, exactly. you know. I, I and then we had fun. We had a lot of fun. I mean, so yeah. You should be that guy, Brad. I'll be the bridge. I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be like the weirdo, and they're all like thinking, like, well, why is he? He can't hang with us. But it's just this is what I would say. I think the conversation is more interesting. I like good yeah. conversations, and that isn't to say that I can't have good conversations with guys. I just think in social contexts, maybe it's a Los Angeles thing, but I think it's just a guy American thing. The guys are going to talk about sports or they're going to be like talking about work and trading like war stories from work and like kind of subtly like mentioning their success. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, ugh, I can't, I can't even. Yeah. The women tend to be funnier and just more personal and more interesting. Not always, but most of the time in general. So I think I gravitate towards that. I also think maybe I'm not an alpha male. And so I'm like, okay, I just need to go over here and sit down. I can't, I'm not going to win this competition. I don't even want to compete in this conversation about like how many deals you made or, you know what I'm saying? I just can't even yeah. do it. So I just retreat. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. But I mean, I mean, it's, it's always hard to, to generalize, but I guess definitely we have, you know, uh, throughout time, we have been assigned these roles and kind of it was like a it was our thing. It was like a woman's thing to, you know, talk, to discuss feelings, emotions, deep stuff, whatever. 
Um, so maybe we just got better at it, you know, just talking stuff out. That's what it is. It's like, it's like, it feels, it's not even gendered really to me. It's just that it's more human. It's like, oh, okay. So we're, I, I want to like find out what's going on with people. So if it's a guy yeah, or if, so. I don't care if it's a guy or a girl or whatever, you know, just as long as someone's talking to me, it's like, okay, now we're on some ground yeah. that feels uh, real. And the rest of it just feels like kind of like rote and you know it's like you're just going through the motions it's not like it's almost like insulting yeah. to a degree and i do it too sometimes like i hate when i catch myself in those sorts of lazy habits of conversation um especially in social situations where i might have to make an effort to extend myself in the direction of somebody i either don't know at all or don't know well yeah i think it's it's harder work to get human but it's work worth doing and sometimes I'll catch myself just being like, so what do you do? Or, uh, you know, just making some bullshit joke that I've made a million times. And yeah. I try to get myself out of that so that we can actually have a real exchange, you know, yeah. and, uh, it always goes better when I do that. I think it's always good to break the ice with something completely inappropriate and then, you know, jump over like 20 steps in any relationship and then you're fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's nothing better than being around somebody who says something inappropriate. Yeah. But honest, I think it takes everybody's guard down. I love being around people like that, you know, who yeah, have, exactly. it's a kind of social grace in a way. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I don't know. I, I, you know, I wish I were more that person. Sometimes I can be that person. I guess we all can in our best, you know, in our best moments. But I find that I've gotten, have you gotten better socially as you've gotten older? I feel like we all degrade really? in some way. Yeah. I feel like I've just you know, gotten I, I worse. I realized that, you know, we were talking about like female friendship and this, but I re I've recently realized I just feel much more comfortable having, you know, a one-on-one -on -one interaction, a meaningful conversation with someone right <laughs> that, here we are <laughs> uh, actually having a conversation then you know being at a party with 50 people and just you know small talk and nothing I just feel tired I feel exhausted like there was there was communication but nothing really got across <laughs> you know you're not changed in any way there's there's like no no interaction really so uh so yeah i have a lot of these kind of i don't have like a big group of friends you know i have a lot of individuals in my life and i just cherish those relationships much more yeah no doubt and i think too you know you talk about the sarah Layla dynamic in your book and you talk about childhood friends uh, and like the depth of those relationships, uh, there's a transparency to it. But I also think for you and for uh, I, but for different reasons, you know, you talk about being born in Zagreb and then um, moving and, uh, you know, kind of losing a sense of uh, territorial identity or nationalistic identity, totally. like mm -hmm. that, that lack of solidity is relatable to me just because I moved around a lot as a child. Like I don't have a, a sense of home. Exactly. I, I live in Los Angeles, but I could, I kind of feel like I could live anywhere versus a person who is kind of born and raised in one place and has that friends and family tie, which is increasingly rare. I think in this age of, yeah. you know, this economic age of remote work and people, 
you know, it started in the 20th century, but it didn't used to be normal at all for somebody to leave home and move across no. the country or around the world to go work. Like you were born somewhere, you probably grew up there, there, you know, your entire childhood, and then you work there or at least close by. Exactly. And as like, I can understand the downsides of that, especially if you're someplace that's not so great or that has limited opportunity. But there's a part of me that always envies people who have that grounded sense of identity in place um, and have those relationships. Like I'm dislocated from all my college friends. None of them except for one live here. I went to college in Colorado. Yeah. I'm dislocated from the towns of my youth and the people that knew me best, except for these few friendships that I've maintained at a distance with great effort over the years, because I want those. So you need social networks. Yeah, I need, I need text messages. I need yeah. text messages. But even to get people on the phone anymore is a pain in the ass. Nobody even wants to talk on the phone. But uh, the point that I want to make in my like long-winded fashion is that these friendships that we forge in childhood not only just are deeper um, because of the timing and the fact that they happen when you're a kid and you're so malleable. But as time progresses, they signify or help you make sense of what home, what home means. And they help you make sense of your own identity in a really deep and important way. Exactly. I don't think I could put it better myself. I mean, to me, I don't have a sense of home the country where I was born no longer exists because technically I was born in Yugoslavia. Technically, the language was called Serbo-Croatian. It no longer exists. Now we have four different names for the same thing. So it's like my sense of where I'm from is is really, really complex. And um, I, I have three nationalities on paper. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, you know, I always envy somebody who would say, I'm Italian and I speak Italian and I'm from, you know, Padua or whatever. And, and like, and like my, my great, great, great grandfather, you know, like they go back hundreds exactly, of years. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you see that cherry tree, my grandfather is buried there. You know, it's like this kind of right, thing. Right. Kind of life and death are there. Everything is there. All the stories are there. I don't have that. But yeah, it, it's precisely this. It's the friends, you know, of course, family, but also these friendships. I feel like... I've made friends after 25, 30, but, you know, that one friend who has known you, (laughs) like, you can't bullshit them, you know, it's like, they're going to be, don't give me the European writer, you know, in Zurich, I remember you in pink boots dancing to like a terrible song, you know, on your 12th birthday. Right. Like these people, they have things on us. You know? And uh, and there's some sort of honesty, like I've seen all of your transformations. I've seen all versions of you and I've accepted all of them. Um, and there's something very nice, really, really nice there. Just you don't get to be a hypocrite with them, you know, just they, they, they've seen it all. Yeah, it's that. And then I think, too, it's um, it's 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 kind of ineffable. But there's a shorthand that you have when you grew up together in the same place. Yeah. Uh, like a million different references that they could make. You might not have even been there, but you know what they're talking about. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Like that shorthand exactly. is irreplaceable. Yeah, totally. I mean, I recently um, talked to a writer 
a German writer who is from Bosnia and who is a remarkable writer. His name is Sasha Stanisic. He wrote the most, he won the most important German award in literature last year. And he's from Bosnia, you know, and we were talking and there were so many references, uh, shared references where you feel like I don't have to explain myself to this person, you know, or some things in my book or even myself or just anything really like this person gets it. Um, and so it could be somebody even, you know, I could meet somebody from Bosnia 20 years from now, but somebody who had, you know, spent their childhood there the same time. And, um, and, and we're going to click. I'm sure it's the same for you. Like if you meet somebody who was a kid in your hometown, you know, and you're going to say one name, you know, the name of that drugstore or the name of whatever, um, he's going to be like, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So there is a sense of, of home there. But I think when it comes to Yugoslavia, for a lot of people, there's also a sense of loss of that feeling, a sense of nostalgia um and just you know trying to figure out who we are now and, and where we belong to without falling into just sheer nationalism so yeah you're kind of a part of i mean i don't know how i forgive me for not knowing but how many people in your generation left there's like a diaspora in europe of people who have left the former Yugoslavia and are yeah a lot it's so funny you know when I when I went to Vienna the first time I went there I was like oh maybe I can pick up some German and then I was walking down the street and everybody was speaking in my language everybody was, was eating, you know Serbian dialect Bosnian dialect it was just people who had left during the war and also here in Switzerland um, it's heartbreaking really but you know construction workers cleaning ladies, um, waiters, waitresses, they all, you know, come from Yugoslavia. And somehow it's, it's, it's strange because most of them left during the war and I can see how they're slowly losing their mother tongue because if you don't speak it in 30 years, you know, it's like a muscle, you're going to lose it. Uh, so I meet these people, like these these Yugoslav ghosts, you know, with this very strange mutilated language. And to me, they're like the best image of that country, of what it is, you know. It just fell apart and now it's like just try to find work anywhere else. And, you know, it's slowly losing losing memory and losing, which is something I wanted to explore in the book too, you know, what it's like to like lose touch with your own mother tongue and what that means. The book also is about, critically, um, Leila's brother, and uh, help me with the pronunciation, is it Armin? Yes, Armin. Yeah. Armin, yeah. So Armin is Leila's brother. By the way, I should say too, I know Leila's complicated. I love Leila. And <laughs> Thank I th you. Yeah, here's what I respond to in Leila, because Leila is strong-willed. She's got no filter. I like people, even if they say things that I don't agree with or that might even be offensive in some quarters. There's a certain kind of person. She's drawn very well in your book. But I'd rather be around that person than the person who's sort of passive aggressive and holding totally. his or her cards close to the vest. And there's a kind of like native or raw intelligence in her, uh, an alpha quality. Like a, there's a, I don't know. It's weird. It's like, I, I don't necessarily know if I'd want to be like her. But I'm, I find myself admiring people like that to a certain degree because I lack some of those qualities. That sort of, and I think Sarah feels like similarly. You know, she's exactly. maybe yeah. it's the the writer 
in me responding to the writer and Sarah, you know, this kind of more inward, timid, uncertain, self-conscious, you know, personality type or wiring countenanced against Layla, who is brash and maybe not fully in control of her emotional self. And that leads mm-hmm. to be, like behavior and um, expressions of, I don't know, any range of things, fear, disgust, <laughs> contentment, you know, it comes out in all these different ways, but um, you feel like it's really her. And often there's a lot of insight in it. I don't know. She's complicated, but she's really lovable. Well, I'm happy. I'm happy you like her because uh, when the book came out originally, there were like a lot of readers kind of hating her. She's unbearable. You know, she just does whatever she wants. Um, and then they would side with Sarah. It was almost like a like team Layla, team Sarah thing, which to me <laughs> was just ridiculous. Um but then I would remind them, you know, you have to remember that you're reading a story from only one point of view. Like there's one person describing everything. And I want I deliberately I wanted uh, Sarah to be this kind of narrator who's going to, you know, use this flowery language, a lot of metaphors. She's trying to explain everything to rationalize it, why, you know, with this kind of um, constantly comparing things to something else, like not being direct um, and also fabricating uh, quite a bit. Uh, So to, you know, on the other side, to have somebody who speaks directly and who did not have all the privileges that Sarah had and who just like has seen the other side of life. And to show that these two girls, when they were girls, um, just because they had different names, their paths were completely different from that day on, you know. And um, and Sarah would have been much different if she had had to suffer all the things that, that Layla's family had suffered. So, like, Layla's not going to take any bullshit, you know. She's going to see it for what it is and call it you know, for what it is. Um, and, and I wanted to have this, this kind of clash. So I was really sad when people told me they didn't like her. I was like, you know what? Nonsense. <laughs> She's kind of like heroic to me in some way. I kind of want to be like her more, but, um, not too much, but in the good <laughs> ways. And Layla's got a brother named Armin who is like, a she was uh, Sarah's crush as a teen. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, you talk about the importance of friendships forged in adolescence and in our youth and how, you know, deep those ties are. I mean, I can still remember my junior high school crush. Everybody can, right? You know, those things are indelible. And uh, you do a great job of drawing, you know, the scene, like the pivotal scene in the backyard where they sort of you know, he's, he's pretty, he's older. How many years older is he? Yeah, he's 16 there and, and Sarah is 12. Okay. So that's like the age gap where it's like, he's, remember how yeah. all out, like all powerful somebody who was 16 seemed when you were 12, they seem like yeah, adults. To her, he's like a God. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then he disappears, you know, he is not a, he is not a present character in the novel, except in memory. And I want to just talk to you a little bit more historically about this kind of eventuality. Like obviously in a war, 
young men get killed and bad things happen to men and women, but especially to young men who are out there fighting or whatever. But um, the character of Armin has sort of vanished and there's a lot of mystery around what happened to him. Like from a writerly standpoint, were you drawing on uh, like a lot of precedent or personal experience? Like how common was it for people to just disappear in that war and in that time? It was very common. And I mean, um, Armin and, and his friends, uh, all of those who had Muslim names, um, uh, they actually, you know, they were seen as, as some sort of menace, as the other, you know, pretty much the way we see, you know, young refugee men today, you know, they're here just to, to you know, um, I don't know, to harm us in some way or whatever the, the paranoia is about, you know, it's this idea of creating this this other that we can be afraid of. So a lot of young men uh, went missing and they were never found. Their families never really had a closure. Um, and, and this was just um, something that nobody really talked about. Um, some of them, you know, um, just escaped, went somewhere else, and some of them were found um, murdered. Uh, and it's um, it's terrible. And the, the the weird thing is is that it's still Bosnia is still a place where this can happen uh, for different reasons, uh, usually political reasons. Uh, you know, you, we talk about how, oh, we used to have this communist dictatorship and now there's democracy. Yeah, but these people who are, you know, uh, like the, the, the presidents or whatever, the head of these countries, they were forged in that same system and they they haven't changed their modus operandi <laughs> overnight. So it's the same kind of, you know, um, dealing with, with the enemy or whatever the perceived enemy is. So, so... It is something that, and there's this uh, there's this sentence in uh, my language which is really interesting. They say there's this um, phrase. They say if somebody goes missing, the darkness swallowed him. You know, and it's like it's such an interesting sentence to me. It was really interesting because like there's no agency there. Like you don't really blame a person, a politician, or the police. No, it's just darkness swallowed him or her. Um, so I, I wanted to play with that too and to show that. So it wasn't something, you know, I invented because it was a good like plot twist. It was something that actually happened. And then I wanted him to be this 16 year old God who never really develops as a literary character because he went missing when the narrator was 12. <laughs> so everything we get from him it's it's this dark hole you know it's just this place something that is not there and then she can idealize him and turn him into something probably if she saw the real man he wouldn't you know <laughs> be right. close to that idea but then like for the rest of her life all of her relationships all of the men that she meets you know they can never quite compare um so I think both too. But again, I mean, if you if you think of this, the difference, Sarah lost, you know, her crush, this romantic story. But Leila lost a brother, you know, and uh, it's 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 um, much harder. Somebody that she really knew well, who was like, you know, the other side of the the, the coin, you know, Leila and Armin, very very similar. So uh, again, there's this 
difference between this experience, you know, his um, his him going missing. Um, so yeah, I wanted him to be this kind of dark center in the story, um, and then um, Sarah is kind of moved by him, like he's the the principal motive for her. But I wanted her by the end of the book to realize that the story was actually not about him. That the story was actually about Layla. That it was Layla, you know, who was the the real protagonist of the story and the real reason that she went on this uh, trip. So this was kind of the um, the learning curve that I wanted for Sarah. Sorry, I'm going on and on. No, 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 <laughs> no. It's interesting to hear you talk about it. It's making me think of a a book uh, that I read earlier this year and an author that I talked to. It's nonfiction, but I, it's called Certain and Impossible Events. I hope I'm not botching that with my terrible memory, but it's by um, Candace Jane Opper. And it's a memoir and kind of reads like a mystery, but it's about uh, a boy that she had a huge crush on in junior high who committed suicide. Like they were in band together. They played instruments and you know he was this like fantastic musician apparently he was like really good at the saxophone and she just had this like huge crush on him but never consummated never told him about it he had no idea and then he committed suicide i want to say a week after kurt cobain and she spent the next like 30 years essentially writing this book (laughs) um because he was frozen in her it's like that obsession it's like i think the reason it it came to mind is because you're talking about Armin and how Sarah has this obsession with him and how she weighs every male, you know, male relationship that she has or intimate relationship she has against that ideal. And that ideal is fixed because he disappeared. She never Mm -hmm. got to see him age into a frumpy, ornery, middle-aged man, you know, like, or whatever. I mean, she barely had any contact with him really. So he was just this really useful vessel to to just fill with whatever dreams and ideas she had about him this is also something that um i really loved in um uh, that james joyce story the dead um where you know there's the young lover who died um and then there's the husband (laughs) And and this is this is very much autobiographical when it comes to joyce but you know there's this feeling of i can never come close to that young boy singing under your window, you know, in the rain, whatever, because he died. So what you said, you know, it's fixed. I'm the husband. I'm the one you're going to see in the morning, you know. <laughs> you're gonna yeah, you don't want to hear me sing me. anywhere, let alone under your window. That's a... <laughs> Exactly. So, uh, so he was, you know, he kind of, the uh, Gabriel in the story becomes, and Joyce himself becomes like obsessed with this figure, uh, like jealous, but what are you really jealous of? Like, what is it? So, uh, so I was also interested in this, you know, this kind of, um, person who's not really it's probably if we if we had Layla tell us the story and describe Armin he would be completely different you know he would be probably the annoying older brother who has a lot of like you know things like she she doesn't like or whatever but we don't get that we just get this 16 year old god 
artist maybe he wasn't even that good at it we don't know like to sarah he's just perfect right yeah to me um, I, I consider armin a heartthrob after reading your book i have a crush on him for god's sake <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah so so yeah so then you know to have him um go missing that kind of gives a whole different dimension to the story so uh I want to track your biography a little bit more just because you've been so many different places and um, it's unique, you know, the how well-traveled you are and how itinerant. Um, Not really. So, I've never been to, to the States. Well, come on over. <laughs> well, what better time? There's, there's this thing, I don't know if you've noticed, this global pandemics. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, well, whenever that, you know, eventually subsides, you know, and we get back to some semblance of ordinary, you yeah. should, uh, hopefully come over and do some kind of tour. I don't know if book tours are going to be a, as much of a thing as they once were. I hope they come back. I would uh, love to. It was so sad to have my book come out in you know, the middle of all this. Yeah. Yeah. I feel for, I've, you know, I've been doing all of these. Everybody's gone through the, yeah. yeah. Um, I used to only do this show in person. I used to insist on it, which limited my pool of uh interviewees because not everybody was coming through los angeles but that was it was just more compelling it's gotten better i guess as technology's gotten better i find that i'm able to do it um just fine i mean the pandemic forced my hand yeah uh, exactly but i think i'm just uh, tired of seeing you know upper halves of people right right, right. i miss seeing feet and shoes <laughs> just... what kind of shoes are we wearing now? i've got my running shoes on I, they're not that impressive but um anyhow i want to ask you about you know you said you majored in english meaning uh like english literature or did you study the language it was um the program was called english language and literature okay so you're learning to be fluent in, uh, you're learning to be fluent in English and you're also reading James Joyce, right? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> okay. And where did you do this? So I, um, I did my bachelor, bachelor's degree in Banja Luka in Bosnia. And then I moved to Belgrade to do my master's. And, but actually we didn't read a lot of Joyce. I remember one day the, this professor is kind of weird professor. Everybody has a weird professor. He kind of showed up in class and he said, I'm supposed to talk, you know, to talk to you about Joyce, but I haven't read Ulysses. I don't want to read it. I don't want to read Finnegan's Wake. I, you know, if you want to go there, whatever, I'm not going there. And I was like, what, what is it with this book, you know, <laughs> that, you know, a university professor is, you know, bragging about not wanting to read it. So I kind of went to it on my own. And I think it was uh, when it comes to my to my literary education, it, it was the books that I found on my own that had more influence on me as a writer than, you know, what I read. Of course, you know, you when you study English literature, you read a lot of, you know, Dickens and, and <laughs> you know, George Eliot and Jane Austen and the Brontes and great, great writers. But uh, it was what I found later that really uh, kind of got me hooked. Um, so, yeah, I did. I did that. And then uh, I had a I had two BAs and, and a master's degree and I couldn't get a job in Bosnia. I was a waitress for a while. 
then like the best I could hope for was a secretary. Um, and I was just, I was depressed. I was really sad. I just felt stuck and paralyzed. Uh, so I decided, okay, I'm leaving. Uh, what can I do? Well, I can maybe teach English, you know. So, um, so I went to Prague to get this international certificate uh, for English teachers, uh, and and that was like the start of my kind of um, moving around and and just traveling and um, yeah. So where have you been, all, all told? I mean, I feel like you've spent some time in Ireland. Is that incorrect? No, I haven't. I mean, I have visited, but um, I never lived there. And that was a mistake that my agent made. He, for some reason, thought that I lived in Ireland. I think he um, saw me as Sarah or saw Sarah as me. I don't know. And, uh, well, that's what, that's what I was doing. Out. That's what I was doing. I was like, oh, she must have lived in Dublin at some point. But no. Oh, God, no. When the book came out in German, there was this biography um, in the first edition. It said, you know, after the war, Lana moved to Dublin and she lived there for. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is incredible. I've never, like, I've been there, obviously, but um, I've never lived there. Um, I chose Dublin for, you know, Sarah's dwelling because. Uh, because of this connection uh, with Joyce and because, you know, for me, Sarah, Sarah's escape is physical, it's to Ireland, and my escape was kind of to literature. You know, I just decided I'm going to ignore this, you know, war, childhood, Bosnia, my language, everything, and I'm just going to study the English modernists and you know, I'm going to get into Ulysses. Um, and I did it for like, it was like 10 years of my life. I just spent, you know, with <laughs> with this. I even taught a class in Barcelona about Joyce. You know, that was my escape. So I thought I wanted to show it in the book, you know, like just to that, that I also spent a lot of time figuratively in Dublin. So, so you've read you've read Ulysses and you've read uh, Finnegan's Wake covered covered. Nobody cover. has read Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> I was going to James Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got to say, like I've tried to read Ulysses and I've picked up Finnegan's Wake and I I have not yet been able to go all the way through. It's been a while, so maybe I've matured <laughs> or something. But it, you've read yeah, Ulysses well, and it. I think now really there's like there's no excuse because there's a lot of stuff on the internet that can help you. Uh, the thing is, you know, a lot of people like they they come to a book wanting it to be one thing, to do one thing. And books are just another medium and each book is going to do something different. You know, one is going to be entertaining, you're going to take it to the beach. The other one is going to be a journey that for me was like a lot of years. And I love puzzles and I love books that take me to other books. And, you know, OK, now I have to go and read Dante. And then when, once I'm done, then I come back. And so I love this, you know, to me, this is to some people it isn't. And I respect that, you know, it's, it's fine. But um, it was uh, definitely worth it. And once, you know, get into it. I think you either never get into it or you never get out uh, because like there's always more to find and discover and um, and there's a great Joycean community, just basically a community of mad people. <laughs> um, and and now I'm uh, I met a 93 year old man who runs the James Joyce Foundation in Zurich 
because that's where Joyce died. And he's like my best friend in Switzerland, <laughs> you know, and, and when I appeared uh, there at the foundation, he like saw me and he was like, what, what is this young person who looks like she has a life <laughs> doing here? And then we really connected. So it, it really feels like a family, you know, you can meet somebody from across the world and just quote something from Ulysses and it's like instant connection so yeah, yeah i really recommend it but i also know it's not for for everyone i just i'm sad that it's seen as this elitist thing you know academic intellect when actually it's so much fun it's the first novel in you know the history of literature where you have the main character take a crap <laughs> you know <laughs> what could I be mean, better it's, it's so much more than just, you know, elitist, uh, academic, whatever, scholarly text. Um, it's really a lot of fun. All right. You're selling me. I'll have to give it another shot. I think like... I'm better at selling joys than at selling my own book. <laughs> <laughs> right. He could use a publicist, frankly. I think he, uh, you know, he needs, he needs a little boost. Yeah. Um, so you go to Barcelona, you're teaching English, you were in Prague. Now you're in Zurich. Is there any place else we're missing that you've been and lived? Uh, Zagreb on okay. and off yeah but that's a very strange thing because I was born there but I didn't grow up there and so my dialect is different uh, so when I go there at the same time I'm in my hometown and I'm somebody else like I'm, I'm an outsider you know so um, so that's really that's really strange but I love I love Zagreb I love uh, being there and yeah I mean I usually go to these residencies and they can take from, you know, one, one month to six months or one year. So lately I've just been kind of going around. That sounds great. <laughs> Tuscany and Tuscany and then Serbia, back to Serbia. Sarajevo, I did the residency there. I love Sarajevo and now Zurich. So I'm hoping to go to Berlin. Um, so I'm kind of sticking to Europe. I would like to explore other continents <laughs> but i feel like europe is maybe friendlier to the artist i mean i know like america has residencies and i mean these things exist but i just feel like maybe the stipends are more generous or there's a higher volume or something um maybe too the proximity of nations you just have more options because they're all bunched up together in a relatively you know close proximity geographically but if you yeah, can pull it off, it's great. I mean, you get to go experience these different cultures. You're able to live someplace. That sounds ideal kind of for a writer. Yeah, but then it can also, you know, I don't know. I mean, I wrote this novel in Barcelona. I was working as an English teacher. I had like really, it was it was quite a, a rough time because I had to take the the bus and then the train and then another bus to get to work and I would come home at 11 p.m. and completely exhausted uh, and then I would sit down to write so oh. I wrote the book yeah I would eat you know have dinner or something and then I would be writing till 3 or 4 a.m. Um, so yeah sleep disorders <laughs> all of those things um, and that's when I wrote this novel, you know, and now actually I'm in this residency, this perfect place, you know, to write. I just, basically, I just need to be writing. I'm here. I have the place. I have, you know, this scholarship, whatever. 
and I'm really struggling with writer's block. So I don't know. I don't know what's better. I mean, uh, I just don't want our listeners to think, yeah, I need to get a residency in, in order to write my book. Like that's an excuse. Right. If <laughs> you you're know? not in Tuscany on an idyllic <laughs> pastoral, you know, campus where you're uh, looking out of a window over, you know, rolling <laughs> fields, there's no way that novel's getting done. <laughs> but I relate to that. I think sometimes the more we have to do, the more productive we are. And if we I have too, so. too much downtime, you know, I don't know what it is. Maybe like, were you, ca were you drinking a lot of caffeine? You must've been. <laughs> there was a lot of caffeine. There was, I mean, and everything was going on. It was really tough, but I kind of, I had it, I had it so clear in my head that, you know, there was no prep time. Like I would sit down and I knew exactly where I left off. I knew exactly where, where I was going. So this is why it's good to have an outline. You know, you sit down and you work. Um, there's no like sitting around waiting for ideas or inspiration or whatever. Um, so that's one good piece of advice. Have an outline. I know it doesn't sound romantic, but you know, it's going to help you. If you only have one hour, well, you know what you're going to do in that hour. So in that way, it was really, really helpful. Well, and even if you deviate from the outline, like it's not exactly. like you, you don't have to adhere to every last letter of it, but at least it gives you a framework, you know? Exactly. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, there, there are some, at least one chapter is complete. I rewrote it from scratch. It's completely different from what I had in mind. So, um, I, I, I don't think you could, you should just stick to it, you know, for the sake of it, because the story is going to kind of tell you, no, I want to go here, you know, explore that. And if the story is telling you that probably the reader is going to feel the same way, so you should go there. But just having some sort of idea of I'm working on this, you know, I was kind of connected to it, even though, you know, I, I, I could be teaching, I could be doing whatever, you know, correcting exams, explaining past simple tense or whatever yeah. <laughs> to Spaniards. But like I was connected to it, you know, it was constantly there. And then it was easy to tune in and just keep going. Wow. Well, it worked out. I'm, I'm doubly impressed now that you wrote this in the throes of sleep deprivation. But then again, you were living in Spain where everybody eats dinner at 11 o'clock at night anyway. That's so there's, true. Yeah. yeah. So you were within but the I normal frame. But I don't frame. recommend it. Were you taking a siesta? Were you engaging in that too? Like you? <laughs> no, I mean, it was, it was a strange, it was a really strange time, like personally, professionally. And, you know, at that point I had no agent. I had no publisher. And I think that helped too. Like nobody knew that I was writing. Nobody even knew that I was a writer in that city, you know, except for my partner. But like nobody really had any idea. So I didn't feel like, you know, anybody was expecting this. I think it was Paul Oster who said um, a, a really good line. He said, the world doesn't owe you anything, <laughs> you know. And that was such a great piece of advice. Like, yeah, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody's waiting, you know, not sleeping because Lana Bastasic is writing a novel. Nobody cares. Right. I'm just like doing this because I want to tell this story. Um, and it was easier because of that. Now that I have, you know, a book deal, an agent, a publisher, now it's much different. Now it's like, okay, and now I can actually. The, wait, and the winner of the 2020 European Union Prize for Literature. Yeah, also... that doesn't help. <laughs> Yeah. So now the stakes are raised, you know, like yeah. it's an award-winning published author translated 
multiple languages. Like, I guess this leads to the natural question of what are you working on? Like, what's your next book? I, you're working well, on it right now in, in Zurich. Yeah. Well, the thing is that I ha I did um, publish a short collection of, sh of short stories, short collection of short stories um, uh, in between. Because this book, the Catch the Rabbit, came out in the original language in 2018, so for me it's been like a while in a way. Um, and I decided to go back to some short stories that I was writing about childhood trauma with with children as protagonists, and um, and that book came out um, recently in Zagreb and Belgrade. Um, and I was just happy to you know work with, on something else. And I think short stories are a great bridge between two novels because you're kind of, you know, developing your craft, your work, you're, you're not getting too attached. Um, you're just kind of, you know, working on each little stone in a way in your workshop and um, kind of also getting, you know, cleaning your mind and your style from that voice of that book. Because I, I, don't, I think there is a difference between style and voice. I think a lot of writers confuse that. And I don't want to repeat myself. You know, I don't want Sarah to write another book. I want to write another book. And I want it to have its own voice. Uh, so, um, so the, you know, writing short stories helped me kind of get rid of Sarah and, um, and move elsewhere. And I'm not going to tell you where because I think I'm going to jinx it if I if I tell you what I'm working on. That's fair. That's fair. I won't press yeah. you. I understand the superstitions that writers have, and I think it's uh, important to honor them. But I think it's it's worth following up a little bit on this idea of writing short stories as kind of a palate cleanser. Um, I don't know if I've heard somebody say it exactly that way, but it makes some sense to me. And on a related note, I think of what you just said about the the zone that you were in when you were writing Catch the Rabbit, even amid all this tumult, you know, and the difficult work schedule and everything in Barcelona, you had a sense of focus that I think is common to the story of every book ever written. And it's like a feeling that you're chasing. It's a wonderful mode to be in, in a lot of ways, yeah. especially when you're not in it. I, I have lived both experiences, one far more than the other, but there is a joy to being in the, in the, depths of working on a book and having a real sense of mission and clarity about what you're doing. Even yeah. if it's hard work, it's nice to get up and go face the blank page and have a sense of directionality. Yeah. And yeah. I, I guess I, I, there's not any way to, to tie it up in a bow, but I'm going to posit something and I just love, would love to hear you respond to it. But it's this notion of uh, if we're going to follow this, this idea of writing short stories in between novels as a way of sort of cleaning out the wires or whatever, and um, divesting yourself of the voice of your previous book. I think too, when you're working on stories and you're working in miniature, it's allowing you to test out characters and other voices and themes, like you say, without getting too bogged down or spending too much time there. And I think if you're working on a novel, it's just, it's a much bigger canvas, obviously. And there is a synergy that has to happen or that feels like it happens in good books when you're reading them where, you know, the author is in command of the whole world of the thing and all the different moving pieces of the puzzle, all the, all the machinery inside of it, you know, the unseen machinery inside of it. That's, that's a place that you have to arrive at 
after usually a lot of failure. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of false starts. It's a lot of um, trial and error, multiple drafts, lost chat, all that kind of stuff. Or you're hacking away at the outline for six months just to get your head wrapped around it. But I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that like, not only is it a way of divesting yourself of the previous narrator and the previous voice so that you can get to something new, but it's like initiating that process of uh, assembling all those various forces <laughs> that you're going to need to bring to bear on the next big story. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's good. To, it's kind of a good reminder that it's work. You know, for me, like short story. I love short stories. I wish. I think I would be writing more short stories if you know the market was <laughs> different. Um, it's just. Um, it just reminds me. Okay, this is this. I don't have. I have a very small canvas, and I don't get to you know explore one plot line. The other one. I'm just trying to do this one little thing, um, and you really feel like it's you know working. You're in a workshop and you're just you know um doing hard work and you kind of fall out of uh love with yourself <laughs> in a way um but for me it was also useful with every you know short story to think about the themes that i want to explore more that i'm to 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 realize what is it that really interests me not what i you know want uh, to be interested in, but something that's real that I keep going back to. What is it? What is it? What is it? And I like to, if I can put it in, in into one word or a sentence, then I kind of have it, you know, just, just like not, not the plot, not, not just, just what's this. I like to call it the center. Like what's the center of the story? What are you? So writing this, the, um, this collection, I realized that, um, okay, there's a lot of trauma, there's this and there's that. And then I realized I want to write about nostalgia. I'm interested in nostalgia. You know, that's like, but it took a long time to get there and to realize this will probably be the center of my next novel. I still don't have all the details figured out, but I, I have that, you know, and then everything is kind of, kind of easier. Um, I think that's also a good tip for any writers who might be listening like just figure out what it is that you want to you want to tell like what is the what is that thing you know maybe you think it's a love story and it's not a love story at all you know this is <laughs> so, this is this is what's so crazy uh it's like maddening and hilarious at the same time how mysterious we can be to ourselves you would think yeah. that if something is this important to us and is in there buried deep that it would be more accessible and yet we have to sit there and like peel away the layers and go through all this trial and error just to get to the point where we can write a sentence and go, Oh, so that's yeah. what I'm fixated on. Like we have, we're so good at hiding from ourselves. We don't even realize it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you were talking about a writer being in command of the book, but I think like, um, more often it's the books that are in command of us somehow. Right. right. Uh, and then you have to struggle. I do think that if it is a battle between the writer and the story, I think the story has to win. Um, and the, the writer has to just let go of, you know, his or her ego and say, okay, this is, this is where the story is. You know, I think this is interesting because it happened to me or my grandpa told me this or whatever. No, but your story is actually here. There's there's a great anecdote, and I'm not going to keep you any longer. <laughs> um, but the story of um, To Kill a Mockingbird, which um, apparently the first draft was completely different. And it was the editor who told Harper Lee, 
this is not where your story is. This the the actual story of the the meat of this book is here. Should go here. Do, do you know uh, what the what was the what was the uh, the shift? Was it like making it Scout's story? Was it like a shift in was it taking it out of Atticus? I think and... it was that, and also kind of giving more uh, stage time to Atticus and and the whole thing. But um, I, I mean, you we you should check this. I, I can't remember the exact details, but I remember reading that it was actually the editor who said your story is here, and then you know. Harper Lee went back and she rewrote the book. And um, and obviously it was the right choice now. It's a great American classic, you know, but this is this is sometimes we tend to cling to our initial idea. Like, no, 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 but I wanted to write this huge novel, you know, huge historical novel about Bosnia, starting with the Ottoman Empire and the <laughs> killing of the Austrian prince and the no, but maybe you just want to talk about, you know, growing up a little girl in this town, this short, and that's, you know, it's, so, um, you know, it's not healthy to cling um, onto this one idea. Just let your story show you, you know, where it wants to go. I think that's wise advice. And I think sometimes too, it's like, you know, the personal is universal or, you know, you can think you have to work on some grand scale in order to say something deeply meaningful and a lot of times yeah. it's it's the opposite that's true you know you try exactly. to you try to approach things like you know covering millennia and you know exactly. making some sort of like omniscient proclamation about human nature or whatever and you know you're much better off telling the story of a road trip with two you know, estranged, but deeply connected friends. Well, you know? now, now I feel a bit, a bit, you know, arrogant, giving all this advice, that <laughs> one right. novel, <laughs> but it's just because I, I think, you know, since I went through it, like, I, I wish somebody had told me this and probably, you know, maybe with the next book, I fail completely and I write a really bad book and that's fine. You know, I mean, yeah. there are some writers that I love, like, for example, I love Julian Barnes, but there are some of his books that I just, don't really care for and then there are others that I love so it's like you know I realize like that's fine you know it's not like you are a writer it's like you write a good book you write a bad book it's fine so yeah I just I don't want to come off as this arrogant okay you know I will you know follow me I will show you the way <laughs> it just I, some sort of things that um I, I think maybe would be helpful to other writers well, and I think too, you you know, I say things like that all the time and I'm mostly I'm talking to myself, you know, it's just things you, you realize either along the way or you're kind of reflecting on after the fact, but, um, it's like, you know, you know that moment when you give a Ted talk to yourself, in the past, <laughs> you know, complete with the, I don't know what you're hands. talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. I would never <laughs> do such a thing. Um, <laughs> but you know, you talk about writers and you know, maybe you write a good book, maybe you write a bad book. I mean, look at, uh, Look at uh, Harper Lee. I mean, she exactly. wrote that one book, really. I mean, I know there was the, the sequel or whatever, but there's some controversy yeah. around its publication. But to me, she kind of is the, she's like the the ultimate story of that writer who writes that one masterpiece. Yeah. And one of the great, like, sort of sideline stories that I love about that book is the fact that she had these rich friends in New York who financed her for a year. Do you know this? Uh, well, I, I knew that she had friend, like rich friends. I didn't know that they financed her for a year. They gave her like a, I want to say it was like a Christmas present or a birthday present. And she opens the envelope and it's like, we're going to pay for your life for a year, write your novel. 
And what I don't know is, like, do they get a cut of the royalties on this thing? Like, talk about a great investment. If you're going to finance a novel yeah. to be written, at least you financed an American classic, you know, like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Like, it's a kind of a nice story of like creative midwifery and like a good deed, you know, um, doesn't really happen anymore. <laughs> Not yeah, not enough, right? I feel like maybe we just be... have terrible friends. <laughs> I need to. I definitely need some new friends. That's for sure. Uh, I think as do most. Any of, millionaires all of us. listening to us now? <laughs> yeah, you please. can contact us. I'll try my best to write a classic. Um, and hey, you know who knows how this all shakes out? But I feel like Catch the Rabbit has found a readership, um, you know, across borders and is receiving a lot of glowing praise. Like maybe you've written a book that's gonna keep being read. I think you might um, have done it. It's a lovely novel. I really enjoyed reading it. It taught me a lot and I'm excited to see what you come up with next. And I hope that at some point, um, you know, when book tours are happening, you make your way over to uh, the States and you get to see the chaos <laughs> up close. <laughs> Definitely, well, thank thanks for reading. And uh, thanks for such an interesting uh, uh, discussion. Uh, a lot of questions that I haven't heard before, and it's been three years, so that's always nice. A lot of, <laughs> a lot yeah, of questions, a lot of questions you hope to never hear again, you know? Like... <laughs> no, but I'm definitely looking forward to, to coming, you know, across the ocean uh, into the land of chaos <laughs> yes. and see what I can get there. Yeah, maybe some new book comes out of that chaos who knows okay you guys there you have it that is lana bostashich and her debut novel is called catch the rabbit it is available now in translation from restless books it is the official june pick of the nervous breakdown book club you can find lana bostashich online at lanabostashich.com you can also track her down on instagram I believe her handle over there is at Lanabasta. Once again, the novel is called Catch the Rabbit, available now from Restless Books. Go get your copy. The Other People podcast is offered freely, all episodes, more than 700 and counting. The entire archive is made available to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this program, if you get something from it, if you listen regularly... And if you have the means, support the show. Tip your server. Just go to patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. For as little as, what is it, two bucks a month, a dollar a month, you can support the show. And then there are higher tiers. You can get stuff, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a t-shirt. I will uh, wish you a happy birthday. I'll write you a postcard. Come on. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. The Other People Podcast lives online at otherppl.com. You can also listen to it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your shows. The program also has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It too is free. Go get the app. If you have something to say, if you would like to write to me, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. The Other People podcast is also now on YouTube. 
It has its own official YouTube channel. Every episode's up on YouTube. Check that out. Next week, I'll be talking with Forrest Gander, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Forrest Gander. You're in for a treat. Had a good time with him. Okay? Okay. <laughs>